Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. We are almost through with the book of Genesis. Can you believe it? But we have a few messages to go. And we're going to look at Genesis 49, part two of Jacob's prophecy as he lay on his deathbed with his sons gathered around him. Genesis 49. Um, let's go ahead and pray one more time. Father, as we just... Uh, Take a moment to take a deep breath right now and just uh, focus on your word. I pray that your word would nourish and strengthen the souls that have gathered here tonight. There will be people who hear this message on the radio at a later time, and I pray that you would also open their hearts and nourish their souls. Whatever they may be going through tonight, you know, and you're able to minister, Lord. And your word is, uh, it's a word of hope to us. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of light. And tonight we're hungry to know you better, Lord, and to trust you more and to see your goodness and your love. Even in a deathbed experience where Israel is getting ready to take his last breath, um, he's going to prophesy some incredible things he already has. And um, as we look tonight, Lord, whatever you want to show us, whatever marvelous truths, whatever light to illuminate our path that you'd want to show us, whatever application you have for us tonight, Lead us, Lord, in the everlasting way, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen, amen. Well, as uh, Jacob was on his deathbed, he first addressed his uh, first four sons from Leah. We remember that Jacob had uh, 12 sons plus a daughter. The daughter's name was Dinah. She doesn't get a whole lot of press. I'm sorry, ladies, but she just doesn't. But um, the sons have gathered around dad at his deathbed, and he's prophesying over the sons, and the sons are, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he addressed Reuben, Reuben in, in verse 3, chapter 49, Simeon and Levi in verse 5, Judah in verses 8 through 10, and gave us this incredible prophecy through the line of Judah. The lion of Judah, the line of Judah says, the scepter, 49.10, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are full up from wine and his teeth white from milk. We talked about those are some signs of uh, blessing and prosperity. And that's where we left off last time, that this prophecy comes that through the line of Judah, who's actually the fourth son from Leah, who was kind of the unloved wife, Judah emerges as a man that God is going to use, his family line is going to use incredibly. Judah's name means praise. And Judah was not a perfect man. This family is not a perfect family. There's a lot of, you know, a dysfunction, we could say, that went on with this family. And yet God is going to use this family to be a blessing to the entire world. I was reading a commentary just today, and one author was saying that the book of Genesis opens with a blessing and it ends with a blessing. And that's really what uh, is happening here with Jacob. Jacob has decided that he wants to bless his children, and the blessing is a prophecy as well. And so what appears to be happening is that his sons are standing around him uh, by their mother. So there's four different moms involved. So you have uh, sons of Leah, and then you have sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and you have sons from Rachel, and they are gathered around dad. And dad begins to dress uh, now 
a man named Zebulun. Look at verse 13. He says, Zebulun shall dwell at or toward the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank, the word flank means the edge or his border, ESV, NIV, shall be toward Sidon or Sidon. So all of a sudden, now Zebulun is given a prophecy about where he's going to abide. So you, you can think about you know, these incredible prophecies about uh, geographic regions. Dave, turn me down just a little bit more if you would. Geographic regions and things that would happen in the future for these people. Um, Zebulun is mentioned here, and he is going to be at or uh, the Hebrew could be toward the seashore. So Zebulun and Naphtali are literally by the sea. Take, a, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, this area becomes very famous for these words. It's a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, Matthew 4. But here's what it says. It's verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12. And it's describing the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew records a temptation that he goes through. Uh, from the devil in verses 1 through 11, Jesus was tempted. And then Matthew has a gap in it that's filled in by the Gospel of John. But Matthew goes here next. He says, Matthew 4, verse 12, Now when he had heard that John had been taken into custody, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee, Matthew 4, 13. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of, note it, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now these are two of the sons of Israel and Zebulun has just mentioned, been mentioned in a prophecy that we just read about. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. It's interesting that Jacob is on his deathbed. Jesus comes to this land that's in the shadow of death. And from that time, verse 17, Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you'll notice that Jesus begins to call now his apostles. He calls Peter, and he calls his brother Andrew, and he calls James and John. And the apostles... Uh, 11 of the 12 apostles come from this region, from uh, the Sea of Galilee region between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. 11 of the 12 apostles come from this region. There's only one of them that doesn't. Can you guess who it was? Genesis 49, if you go back there. It was Judas. Judas is the only one that wasn't uh, from the Galilee region. He was actually from the area of Judah, and his name, Judas Iscariot, is actually the town or village to identify him. Jesus was called Jesus of Nazareth. Judas was called Judas Iscariot to kind of differentiate him from other people. And he was the only one that was from the south. Everybody else was from the northern region, which is kind of interesting given what Judas ended up doing. But Jesus goes to this, what we might say, an unexpected place to Tribal areas that are not the most prominent tribes. Benjamin was a huge pride uh, tribe. Uh, you, have, you have other tribes that take great prominence in, in the life of Israel, but Zebulun and Naphtali, I mean, really? I mean, who have you heard of from those tribes, right? And yet it's in that area of the world, it's in that region of Israel that Jesus calls the nobodies of the world. Uh, those who were from this area were kind of made fun of because they were up north and they weren't in the holiest region down south in Jerusalem. And God calls unexpected people 
from unexpected places to do great things. And these men changed the world. Judas, of course, you know, betrayed the Lord and, and he perished. But then the Apostle Paul came into the group and we also have Matthias. And, and so here's what happens. Uh, God can call you from, you know, an unexpected place and even an unexpected time and use you in unexpected ways. And that's what he does. The next prophecy comes to a man named Issachar. Look at verse 14, chapter 49. Issachar is a strong donkey. <laughs> now, that doesn't sound like a, a very encouraging word, does it? He's a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. Um, I'm not going to try to say this in the King James uh, version, because anyway, there's another word for donkey, but we won't go there. He's... A strong donkey. Some people say, well, this is automatically pejorative. This is, this is a way of saying he's a no good. But in the ancient world, donkeys were not looked down upon. They were actually a very prominent animal. They were strong and peaceful. And Jesus rode in on a donkey, right? The foal of a donkey. And uh, the kings would ride on these animals. And so this isn't necessarily a negative way of saying things. But notice he lies down. That may have some negativity to it between the sheepfolds. And when he saw the resting place was good, he said, ah, I don't know how a donkey talks, but that looks good. <laughs> and he rested. And he said, it says, and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became, notice, a slave at forced labor. And when you read on this a little bit, what scholars say is that it seems like in this particular case, Issachar started off well. He was doing good, but then all of a sudden he kind of found a place to kick it and he decided the land was good. It's almost like when Lot, you know, had the choice, which way do you want to go? I'll, I'll go the opposite way, Uncle Abraham said. And Lot saw Sodom and it was, you know, well watered and hey, that looks like a great place. But Sodom was known for what? terrible sin and he kind of landed there and he kicked back there and he got himself in trouble sometimes we we see something it looks like a pleasant place it looks good you know eve the fruit looked good to the eye it was able to make one wise but when she took the bite she went into we might call forced labor you know jesus said anyone who commits sin is a slave of sin and sometimes what we do is we get ourselves in trouble when we're not doing what God's called us to do. King David is an example. At a time when kings were supposed to be at war, King David was up on his rooftop. He saw the woman bathing and he got himself in trouble. And so the old saying is true that, you know, as if we uh, sit around idle, it can be the devil's playground and we need to be busy about our father's business. And so notice that um, Issachar is a strong donkey. I think there's some positive th positives there. But all of a sudden, he gets himself in trouble. Uh, at the time of the judges, Issachar's descendants, together with Zebulun, bravely rallied, by the way, to Deborah and Barak, or Barak, in their struggle against the Canaanites. Go to the book of Judges for a second. So you pass up the first five books of Moses, and you got Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Go to Judges 5 and look at verse 1. Judges 5, verse 1. It says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, that the leaders led in Israel, the people volunteered 
Bless the Lord. Judges 5, verse 3. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. Uh, I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when thou didst go up from Seir, when thou didst march from the field of Edom, the earthquake, the heavens also dripped. Judges 5, 4. Even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. There's a lot of tough names there, so skip down. <laughs> Look at verse 7. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, mother in, and mother in Israel. New gods were chosen. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel. The volunteers among the people bless the Lord. You who ride, what's your Bible say? On white donkeys... You who sit on rich carpets, and you who travel on the road, sing. And the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places. And they shall recount, they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds of his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Now, skip down for a second, and you'll see the people of this resolve who they were. Look at verse 15. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels among the divisions of Reuben. There was great resolves of heart. There were great resolves of heart, verse 16. Why do you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping of the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Gilead remained, remained across the Jordan. Why did Dan stay in, in ships? Asher sat at the seashore. And remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despaired, excuse me, who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. These tribes actually stepped up while other tribes just sat back and did nothing. So there was good stuff that happened from these tribes, and then they became complacent. Go back to the book of Genesis. Sometimes we do good stuff for a while for the kingdom of God. We're excited. We're on fire. We're witnessing to people, leading others to Christ. And all of a sudden, we begin to lest, rest on our laurels. Lest on our laurels. <laughs> and we, all the stories we tell are from 10 years ago when you led someone to the Lord. Well, what's going on now? What's God doing in your life right now? You know, every day is an adventure for the Christian, and we don't want to become complacent or settled or too comfortable. And in, in this case, this tribe actually ended up in forced labor because they got complacent. 49.16. Dan is the next one who is addressed by his father. Dan shall judge. The word judge in Hebrew is not like a judge in a court of law here. A judge, we just read from the book of what? Judges. And the book of Judges is about people who did what? They delivered Israel. And one of the most famous judges from the tribe of Dan was a man named Samson. And Samson's story is recorded in Judges 13 through 16, those chapters. And Samson was a mighty warrior of God. And notice what it says. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent or a viper in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like snakes. Don't like snakes at all. 
this will date me, but the Indiana Jones movie when he finally outruns the, you know, the tribesmen and gets on the plane and there's a snake in the plane. <laughs> and the guy, the, the pilot says, oh, that's my pet snake, Reggie. And he says, I hate snakes. I hate them. And the pilot says, oh, get some backbone, would you? After Indiana's gone through all this terrible stuff. Well, people tend to think that this is a negative picture, but remember, Jacob is giving a blessing on his deathbed, and even though he's real, and each child, each son is going to, going to be given a prophecy that, is, that fits him, in this case, there are many scholars and commentators that believe that this is a positive statement about a coming leader from the tribe of Dan whose name is Samson. And let me give you both arguments. The one argument is, oh, this is a negative statement, and the snake is the tribe of Dan, and here's what happens. Many of their uh, tribesmen, if you will, future generations will fall away from the living God and fall away from the faith. And we do know under King Jeroboam that he set up two golden calves, and one of the golden calves he put where? Up in the area of Dan, which is all the way in the northern part of Israel. And scholars say Dan uh, embraced a lot of idolatry because of the location of the tribe. Now, if you go, uh, we have about 50 people going to Israel. Can you believe that? Uh, in a year, uh, we're, we're going to have to get a big bus. It's, how many of you are going to Israel with us? All right, this is going to be awesome. Anyway, and so uh, up, up there, you're on the Syrian border. There's actually like a little rickety fence. And <laughs> that's where you, but you can, you can walk up and there's some places where you can see some ancient altars. They're kind of stone altars. And it's there that they believe that the worship of the golden calf may have taken place. And this is what happened to the tribe of Dan. And so Dan got in trouble and there was idolatry there. But there, there were a lot of medieval Jewish commentators who understood the metaphor of the viper to be Samson, who by his stealth and trickery defeated the Philistines. And he judged Israel in the sense of bringing victory. Uh, the word for judge in the Hebrew language, as I mentioned, can mean one who protects. God is called the judge of orphans and widows in the Bible. And in the Hebrew uh, picture language, the word for uh, Dan here is judge, and the judge is the door of life. Uh, he's the one who protects you and uh, guards you. And so uh, in this sense, even when we think about God being our judge, it can have a positive connotation as long as we don't end up at the white throne judgment. Amen? If we end up at the Bema Seat judgment, that's the, that's the place where the judge is going to reward us, right? So the Bema is like the elevated platform for an Olympic athlete who gets from the judge a medal. Okay, that's what's going to happen for the Christian. But for the unbeliever ending up at the great white throne judgment, they're going to be told, depart from me, I never knew you. And so the word can have some different connotations based upon um, the context. But there were people in Israel who forsook the judge. God said in Jeremiah 15, 6, You who forsake me, declares the Lord, you who have forsaken me, you keep going backward. So I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. God says, I am tired of relenting. Jeremiah 7, verse 24 says, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels. And in the stubbornness of their evil heart, they went backward instead of forward. We have sayings in our culture that feel like I take two steps 
forward and how many back? Hopefully only one. <laughs> but which direction are you moving right now? Somebody once said that the Christian life is like climbing a greased pole. You're either going up or you're sliding down. By the way, as a Christian, all it takes for you to drift is to do nothing. Have you ever paddled out at Newport Beach? I, I uh, used to surf back in the day, and I went, uh, my wife and I had a chance to stay at the beach for a couple of days, and I went to one of those surf shops, and I rented a board, and when I rented the board, the gal behind the counter started laughing at me. <laughs> she was like, you want that one? And I'm like, it's a surfboard, ain't it? She's like, okay, here you go. And I went out there and paddled out there, but you know how, you, you'll have uh, the lifeguard tower, and maybe it'll say 32, and, and there you are, right? And all of a sudden, you've been sitting on your board, you're trying to look like a surfer, you haven't even done anything, because you're just totally out of breath. You forgot how hard it was to paddle. Can I get a witness? <laughs> you're trying to catch a wave. Nope, not for about a half an hour. And, and you look back, and all of a sudden, the lifeguard tower is over there. What happened? Well, you did nothing. And all it takes to drift is for you to do nothing. Christian life is an active life. And so the prophecy now comes, and I'll leave it up to you to decide which way that one goes. But uh, Dan, you know, had, and of course we know what happened with Samson, right? Samson got himself in trouble with a girl named Delilah, right? And Delilah wasn't like trying to hide what she wanted to do. She said, uh, I'd really, you know, just like to take you out, so just tell me the secret of your strength. The Philistines are upon you. And then he was, oh, didn't really give you the secret. But then finally, day after day, she kept asking him the secret of his strength, and he got sick and tired of being sick and tired. He said, all right. The strength is in my hair. You give me a haircut, and I'm done. Somebody say he went to supercuts. <laughs> That was it was an unsupercut. <laughs> anyway. And all of a sudden in the prophecy, remember Jacob on his deathbed, he gives the prophecy about Dan, and all of a sudden he he says, look at verse 18. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. You're like, what? Why did he do that right there? at the moment right after he prophesied about Dan. Well, could that give us evidence that Dan was really a judge in the book of Judges sense? Like a deliverer? I wait for thy salvation. Was the mention of a snake, did that make uh, Jacob's mind go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the snake came in and, and our first parents fell and we need a deliverer and we have the pre-evangel all the way in Genesis 3.15? Could it be? He says, I wait for thy salvation. I wait, O Lord, for your salvation. By the way, this is the first mention of salvation in the Bible in Genesis 49 and you know what the word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua Yeshua and that's the Hebrew and the Greek form of Yeshua is Jesus and so we could translate this for thy Yeshua I wait O Lord now did Jacob know that Yeshua was coming did he know the name of Jesus I don't think so but I think Jacob at least knew, remember he's prophesying by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think he knew that a coming deliverer was coming. I don't think he obviously knew 
everything that we know today with the benefit of the Bible and so forth. But do you remember when Simeon was in the temple area and he, and he looked at the baby Jesus and he said, now I can depart in peace for my eyes have seen thy Yeshua, your salvation. Jesus is salvation. The word Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. That's what Jesus' name means. Yahweh is salvation. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So from Dan, we move to Gad in verse 19 as we move through these sons. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. Now, Gad apparently was going to be involved in Ratza raids, uh, from what I can see here. No, you guys didn't like that one at all. Anyway, <laughs> the repetition of this word in Hebrew is a play on word from Gad's name, and it actually has the sound of galloping horses. And you remember the hit song that uh, Gad did come up with back in the day. You guys remember, we sang it. Many weeks ago, he has made me gad, he has made me gad. I wrote, you guys don't remember that one? Man, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> First Chronicles 12 verse 8 says, From the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, and whose faces were like the faces of lions. And they were as swift as the gazelles on the mountains. First Chronicles 12, 8. The Gadites came and helped out David. They experienced frequent attacks, but also they did their own raiding as well. One commentary says, Gad is going to go through severe trials, but will experience ultimate victory in the end. Gad means troop. This tribe settled on the east side of the Jordan in an area exposed to raids by some of the deadliest enemies of Israel, including Ammon and Moab. They experienced frequent attacks, but according to this prophecy, they would fight back. Next son is Asher. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and they shall yield royal uh, dainties. So don't know a whole lot about the tribe of Asher and what this all means, but Asher's name does mean happy. And Asher actually ended up on the coast and enjoyed some coastal luxuries. One thing I do know is that there was a woman who was in that same temple area in Luke chapter 2, right after the story of Simeon is told, and her name was Anna, and Anna was from the tribe of Asher. Just a little interesting fact. And it just interests me that she's from this tribe of Asher, and she's in the uh, temple court. She never left there, never left the temple, fasted, prayed, served day and night. And the moment that she saw the baby Jesus. She began to give thanks to God, continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke 2, verse 38. Look at verse 21. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. If you have the ESV and NIV, it says fawns. The reason it does is because there's a little nuance in the Hebrew here, and scholars are not sure which manuscripts I think are the best. Uh, beautiful words is probably... Uh, correct, but uh, that's kind of why it goes both ways. And in beautiful words, uh, just a, a, it's a metaphor here on the dough. I'm not sure everything that that means. And now we move to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bow, verse 22. Now remember, Joseph is the, the man through whom all this incredible stuff happened. He's a fruitful bow by a spring 
its branches run over a wall. Now, we're going to get a little longer prophecy about Joseph for a second, but we've been parked in the story of Joseph really from Genesis 37 all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. And Joseph was a man who was a blessed man, but his blessings did not come through ease of life. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. Then he ends up in Potiphar's house. He gets falsely accused after resisting her constant uh, trying to get him to sleep with her. And he says, no, no, no. And then finally, she falsely accuses him. He ends up in prison. And, but he was still a fruitful man. No matter what's happened to you, God can still produce fruit in your life. Here's what happened to Joseph. The archers bitterly attacked him. Look at verse 23. And shot at him and harassed him. Now Joseph was a fruitful man, verse 22. He certainly you know, produced so much fruit the picture here is of such a, uh, an incredible crop or such, such heavy fruit on a tree that the branches begun to go over the wall and everybody who passes by can partake of the fruit. That was Joseph's life. What was he famous for? Well, among other things, he predicted a coming famine, told the Pharaoh to save the grain for seven years, and uh, what happened in the area of Egypt is he became the viceroy because of his wisdom and insight into the dream. And the whole world rushed to Egypt to survive the famine. But the family that God was really focused on that he wanted to survive was the family of Israel. Because from that family would come the Redeemer. And God's providential hand, as Pastor Chris mentioned, his sovereignty uh, is moving through this whole thing. He's a fruitful bow by a spring. Uh, the man or woman who meditates on the word of God, who will be, she will be like a tree planted by what? Streams of water that produces, yields fruit in its season. When whatever he does, whatever she does shall prosper. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff. They're like tumbleweeds. Anybody have to deal with tumbleweeds before? Tumbleweeds are a pain. They've got no deep root system. They kind of just pick up other stuff. They go under your car. And then if you want to put them in your trash can, have you ever tried to put a tumbleweed in your trash can? It's like, oh! It's like it cuts you up and stuff. So you, I just throw them in my neighbor's yard. That's what I do. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Just kidding. I don't do that. You ever walk by a wall where a fruit tree in somebody's backyard has grown over the wall and you're like, hmm. well, this is now public property. And there's people that have trees that are doing so well. Do you have a friend or a family member that gives you fruit all the time? I love those people. We have, we have a wonderful couple in this congregation that give me avocados all the time. It's such a blessing, man. Avocados, man guacamole man come on how many of you lo love guacamole some of you are just afraid aren't you <laughs> i understand but the archers even though he was fruitful man it wasn't easy the archers bitterly 23 attacked him they shot at him they harassed him arrows could be you know you have archers mentioned here in verse 23 arrows could speak of words how many times do you think that Joseph replayed the scene when his brothers sold him into slavery? How many times do you think that he replayed 
the situation with Potiphar's wife. Words are like arrows. You have a shield of faith, and you're supposed to raise it up, because with it, you will be able to quench all the fiery arrows of the wicked one. So what are the arrows of the wicked one? It's, it's a metaphor, right? It's a picture. It's not literal, although sometimes things do get under my skin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think this one belongs to you. Well, when we raise up our shield of faith, we're able to extinguish all, not some, all the fiery arrows of the wicked one. That's Ephesians 6.16. The shield of faith is part of your armor and one of the things that the devil uses is words to pierce you and get you to focus on them so much so that they envelop you and all of a sudden all you can do is think about the words. I can't believe such and so said such and so about me and so. <laughs> right? I mean words penetrate. They hurt. You know, the, the old... Rhyme on the school ground. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but where's my never hurt me? <laughs> That's how we said it too. Not true, right? We can remember hurtful words from a long time ago. The, the tongue is like a sharp sword. In Psalm 57, David wrote these words. Verse four, my soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword, Psalm 57, verse 4. Man, we have to be careful with our words. But the devil often uses words to penetrate our souls, and we don't raise our shield of faith, and we get hurt. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, sometimes the devil uses unresolved anger as a result of words to get a foothold in our lives. See, when we're talking about forgiveness, we have to forgive people for cross words, hurtful things that have been said to us. Do you think, in, in, and we could talk about many areas, but do you think, would you agree with me that one of the tougher things to forgive is hurtful words? I would say so. I'm sure that there's some other categories that are more difficult, but that's gonna be near the top for a lot of us, and that's a lesson to us that we have to be careful what we say. We have to be careful what we let go from the bow. Everybody with me? Sometimes you take aim, right? Oh, you know what? <laughs> Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm letting it go, baby. God saying, don't do it. <laughs> have you ever noticed that some bows are almost like boomerangs? And then... They usually come back to you anyway, right? Got one of those crooked arrows. <laughs> but his bow, 24, speaking of Joseph, remained firm. The word is steady, unmoved. And his arms, Joseph's arms, man, with everything he went through, were agile. But here's why. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Now, this Jacob, he's about to die. From the from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Don't you love it? Jacob says to Joseph, you know why 
You were so strong. Do you know why you survived Potiphar and the prison and, enslavement and being enslaved by your brothers and being falsely accused and all those years away from your family? Do you know why you were strong, my son? Because the one behind you was the mighty one of Jacob. The one speaking is Jacob. He's the mighty one of Jacob. This is picked up in Isaiah 49.2 where God calls himself, I am the mighty one of Jacob. I think we could apply this to ourselves. He's the mighty one of Michael. Because he, any strength that I have is his. Apart from him, I can do nothing. My strength is in the Lord. And so, beautiful uh, pictures here of God. He's the mighty one of Jacob. He is the shepherd. Uh, earlier, Jacob had said, he's been my shepherd all of my life. And a couple of times in Jacob's life, uh, he marked places with a stone and even poured oil on the rock. Remember that? And he calls him the stone of Israel. And these are interesting metaphors because you think about it. The shepherd of Israel, that was picked up in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, it's way back in Genesis 49. The rock of Israel comes from this prophecy from Jacob, but then that's all through the Bible. For example, Deuteronomy 32, 31, Moses says, indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Amen? There is no rock like our rock. That's an old praise song that some of you will remember. There is no God like our God. He is the stone of Israel, the rock upon which you can build your life tonight. From the God of your Father who helps you, 25, and by the Almighty who blesses you, El Shaddai here, with blessings of heaven above. Now, Jacob's just going to rattle off how God's blessed Joseph. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Uh, the blessings of your father have surpassed, 26, the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph. Can you imagine Joseph at this moment just drinking this all in? And on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. And the children of Israel in Egypt will explode in growth until a Pharaoh comes along who knew not Joseph. Exodus 1.8. But the children of Israel experience great blessing, great fruit because of the life of Joseph. Finally, Benjamin is the last son. The last two are from Rachel, his true love. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. He was the youngest. In the morning, he devours the prey. Again, I don't think that this is a negative, but a positive. And in the evening, he divides the spoil. Joseph and Benjamin, I think, stood together as Joseph got a blessing. And then finally, uh, just a brief blessing here on Benjamin. He's addressed last. Uh, the idea of a ravenous wolf means he's tough, wise, and prosperous. The tribe, this tribe would produce the first king, the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He was head and shoulders above the rest. And a very famous man, probably the most famous Christian that's ever walked the planet, came from this tribe, and his name was also Saul, who became... Paul. And in Philippians 3.5, he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 28. Moses is our author, remember, and he just wants us to remember what we're reading. So he says, okay, just so you guys know, these are the 12 tribes of Israel, these sons. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. 
He blessed them, everyone, with the blessing appropriate to him. It was blessing that he gave, but it was a blessing appropriate to each one. Raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he, was old, when he is old, he will not depart from it. So it was appropriate to each one. Whatever is appropriate to each one. Each child that you have will have a path that they are to walk. We want them to be on God's path, but it'll be the gifting of the Holy Spirit. It'll be the specific um, you know, abilities and strengths that God has given them. And they'll go their way. It'll be appropriate to them. And that's what we need to do as parents to encourage them. And Jacob, as he lay dying now, musters up some last ounces of strength and says, Then he charged them, 29, and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, the promised land, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There's a, there's a site today that is celebrated as this site, by the way. Uh, it's now a Muslim shrine, but uh, they're, they're, they do have it marked with a, a building. And so notice it says, uh, 31, there they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there, Jacob says, I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. This was a, a family burial plot, um, which, you know, we, we do see families do this today. They have a site where generations are buried in the same uh, plot. Uh, I just did a memorial service for a family recently where a loved one was already in the plot and uh, they, they laid their, their uh, loved one to rest that day in that same area. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, 33, final verse, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last. And he was, what? Gathered to his people. Would you notice? To be gathered to one's people apparently happens when you breathe your last. Because to be gathered to one's people, scholars would say, well, that means you are in the family burial plot. Or, you know, there's, there's a site where, you know, this, this particular tribe is buried. But the moment that Jacob breathed his last, he was gathered to his people. And I've been telling you that I think there's strong evidence that to be gathered to one's people is not the burial site. It's the reality of what happens beyond the grave. To be absent from the body is to be what? Gathered to one's people. To be at home with the Lord. What we've longed for, maybe, you know, not understanding that God said eternity in our hearts in the book of Ecclesiastes, that we've longed for something our whole lives and maybe we didn't knew, know what it was. And what it was was to know the God who made us, the creator who made us, and the one who's making a place for us Eden will be restored. There will be a new Jerusalem. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. The former things will have passed away. The curse will be reversed. And to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. This mortal must put on immortality. Then will come to pass the saying, death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? See, the law 
showed us that we've sinned and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is not the end of the story. Jacob breathed his last and he was gathered to his people and Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's the God of Jacob, uh, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Father, as we uh, drink in your word, we just see so many rich and beautiful things about how you guide and direct our lives. Um, and I heard David Jeremiah say earlier, I think it was today or yesterday, that some people asked him when he got cancer, how can you be sick? You're a pastor. And David said, I got sick because I'm human. Lord, we live in a fallen world, but thank you that you entered into our pain in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you bore our shame at the cross. You paid our ransom. And even in these prophecies that sometimes can seem a bit obscure, there's a prophecy that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah was coming, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And thank you that you came as that lamb. You, you were led to the slaughter, you were silent, and you did it for the sins of your people. You did it for the ones to whom the stroke was due, you did it for me. You said you loved me. You gave yourself for me. Lord, may that love tonight be like living waters washing and refreshing souls. May you increase faith in this room tonight, in my life, in all of our lives, Lord. To know that you are a God who knows the future, you're in control, and even though we don't understand everything that happens, we're going to anchor our lives to the living God. You demonstrated your love at that cross. If you didn't care about us, you never would have come. But thank you that you came. And I pray that those who have hurting hearts tonight and need healing, those whose bodies are sick, those who may be depressed or struggling with loneliness or feeling like, man, maybe they don't belong. Maybe they feel like Naphtali and Zebulun. Who are we, man? We're, we're not part of the favorite wife and all of that, but yet, Lord, you had a plan for each one appropriate to them. You care about every person. And you're a God that blesses with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies to those who belong to you. So may you pour out rich and new blessings, Lord, that we cannot contain tonight. And for those prayers unspoken in our hearts tonight that you know about, Lord, may you minister to every need tonight. 